Hi there, and welcome to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. In episode 36, Christopher Mitchell interviews Carol Monroe, the executive director of New Hampshire Fast Roads. Carol tells us about the network, a collaboration between several communities that's planning to bring connections to residents and community anchor institutions all over southwestern New Hampshire. Carol and Chris also talk about New Hampshire legislation introduced this session. House Bill 286, if passed, would remove some of the obstacles facing local communities' ability to build broadband infrastructure. As can be expected, incumbents are lobbying heavily against the bill. Carol also gives us a tutorial on poll politics and describes the New Hampshire Fast Roads model. Here are Carol and Christopher. Today on Community Broadband Bits, we're talking with Carol Monroe, the Executive Director of New Hampshire Fast Roads. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, we're excited to learn a little bit more about uh, this uh, project in New England. Uh, can you start by just giving us a sense of uh, where the project centered and what the community is like? We are an organization in western New Hampshire. Um, uh, New Hampshire Fast Roads is actually an LLC of Monadnock Economic Development Corporation. And I think that's a, a pretty important because it says what this is all about, which is economic development to rural areas. Um, we are building a broadband network from north of Hanover, uh, or, which is in Orford, and all the way down to the Massachusetts line in Ringe, New Hampshire. It's a very rural area of the state. When the grant proposal was submitted, there was cable access only in those areas that are more densely populated. I wouldn't call them urban. Um, the areas like Claremont or Hanover, Lebanon, Keene, and those immediate areas adjacent to those towns. There was some DSL available, primarily the older technologies delivering under 3 megabits per second and less than 760K up. Um, that technology was also only available in those same areas. And for many residents, satellite and dial-up were their only option. This is also an area of the state that incubates new businesses. Many of them start at home, and so there are a number of individuals working from their homes um, for themselves and for other businesses that have far from adequate service. Um, there are town halls and fire departments and police departments running on a dial-up or a satellite connection. And many of the schools were limited to a DSL connection or the large extents of T1 lines. Um, it was an area very ripe for change. We, um, a friend of mine and I would drive up to New Hampshire uh, every year for many years back, uh, maybe 10 years ago, uh, to do rock climbing in Plymouth and Romney. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful area of the state. Um, we drove around a fair amount to just get a better sense of it. Um, and so I just, uh, great diners. It was, uh, it was terrific being there. And I, uh, I can only imagine how great it'll be when you have very good internet access. There are a number of people looking forward to that, particularly in one of our towns that has um, where we're building out to the residences has a large summer population, and those residents are looking forward to being there more often during the summer that when they can actually work from there on a regular basis. So it's it's pretty exciting. So where did this idea uh, actually start in terms of uh, the Fast Roads organization? There are two groups working on this side of the state to change broadband in this region. One it was and is a, wet, a group called West Central New Hampshire, which is eight towns in the Hanover region. And the other is the Keene Municipal Broadband Committee in Keene, but it also reached out to the um, other towns in the Monadnock region. Um, they'd been working on this, and I had, as I used to, in my previous life, I was a CIO for one of these 
uh, educational institutions. And so we all were working to try and change that landscape here. It was incredibly expensive to have good broadband. Um, and we were losing businesses in this region. And so um, we worked on it a long time. But um, the stars have to align. And so we, um, we had some assistance from the Community Development Finance Authority uh, prior to the BTOP grants being announced to do market research, to do a business plan, and to put together a business pro forma. That was really critical to us being ready when those grants were announced to try and be a part of either round one or round two for funding purposes. Um, and, um, and, you know, so when I talk to towns who want to change their landscape, I talk about needing to be ready to do that um, by having their, you know, sort of their ducks in a row, having their, their data um, in front of them. Um, but, and we're funded out of round two. And can I push in just briefly? So, if you have uh, like this group in Keene, how did they become aware of others in other communities or you know in you know maybe uh, other towns nearby? Uh, how exactly does the message spread that there's a group that's trying to solve this issue? We often hear people saying, you know, oh yeah, I have this problem, but I never know how to connect with other people that also want to solve this problem. Um, the King Group um, uh, centered um, most of the individuals uh, involved in that group were either CIOs or directors of technology at the local businesses and educational institutions, um, community anchor institutions in the city um, who, who banded together to discuss this and to try and make a change. And there was a, a predecessor to this group that um, to Fast Roads called Monadnock Connect that was established early in 2000, 2001. And at that time, the focus was on businesses. And we had um, we ended up with a, a uh, microwave solution, point-to-point -point solution for many of the rural businesses in this region. Um, and that sort of morphed this committee into the next stage um, of how do, you, how do you do this differently and, and how can we move it forward. It's interesting. We, we often hear this sort of um, answer, which is that uh, it took a lot of years. It took um, some dogged determination uh, because, you know, you may not get the full solution right away. I'm sure it's disheartening over the time, but but it, over um, over the many years, eventually you have an opportunity. Uh, then you were able to secure the, the funding in the uh, second round of BTOP. That's exactly correct. You have to be persistent. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so what's the what's the status presently? So our project is funded by uh, the second round of broadband technology opportunity funds or a sub-award under Network New Hampshire now, the bigger state project. Um, and so the middle mile on our project is about 90% complete. That's 161 miles. Uh, we will own 48 strands of the 144 that's being constructed on the 161 miles. And then the last mile, which in our case, we're, we call ourselves a last mile wholesale provider. Um, we're one of the few projects actually physically connecting to businesses and community anchor institutions and residences. Um, and so that last mile, which is 86 miles, most of those miles are in the two residential uh, areas that we're building out. And that's about 50% complete. But the good news is, is that we have started last week our go live meetings <laughs> to um, try and light this network in phases and so there's uh, s certain sections of it that are far more than 50 percent they're more like 90 percent complete that will allow us to do that um, the project um, has got its starter funds and um, the bulk of its funding through the uh, btop but it's uh, i think you have a much larger 
project in mind? This isn't the end of the project, right? So where do, where can you go from here and what what's in your way? It is true that uh, 5.3 million are BTOP funds and we have 2.3 million of match funds. In the state of New Hampshire, um, no, none of the match funding has come directly from the state. Um, we have match funds from a consortium of community banks who, who have joined together to provide us with some loans. Um, we have some loans from the Community Development Finance Authority, the Business Finance Authority, from two of the economic development corporations in the state, and a limited amount of, um, of vendor matching funds. And so this gives us this construction, um, this project that gives us connections into community anchor institutions. 229 at the moment have signed up for a connection. Um, of uh, you know of 293, but we had you know uh, we had anticipated 220, so we're pretty thrilled with 229 at the moment. Um, and uh, and so and then two residential areas, and that's about 1,350 homes. You can't do those residential areas without um, the support of the community anchor institutions as well. I mean, it's, it, they they balance each other out, um, and so. As that comes together, our intent is to reinvest uh, back into this network. And it, every place that we are going, um, there has been conversation about how and when and who will be next and what neighborhood um, will be next. We're working with some of the towns who might have some private financing and how they might extend that private financing to do some of this. Um, but it's starting uh, a real energy around this in this, these communities. And many of these small towns now have a broadband committee <laughs> um, trying to work through how, how we can make it happen in their town, too. Um, so it's pretty exciting. It sounds not all that different from uh, just uh, over in Vermont with the EC Fiber Network, where they also, each town has their committees, and they're trying to figure out what resources they can do to expand it. Um, what are what are some of the benefits you're seeing from these connections already? I I, I can only assume that uh, people are thrilled the ones that already have the ability to start connecting. Um, what we're seeing and what we have seen from the time this grant was announced is we're seeing um, some real concern from the existing uh, providers, um, the incumbent carriers, um, and so we've seen some prices drop already. Um, just because they know this this will be out there. And so I think that's actually pretty good for this area. I mean, I, I've certainly seen um, uh, Fairpoint uh, reduce their costs uh, or their cost to the customers um, and to look for, um, you know, some long-term contracts, which as a CIO, I hadn't seen long-term contracts in this arena since maybe 1999. But now they're out there trying to sell long-term contracts again. When you don't have a when the, when you don't have a choice, they want to preserve the opportunity to raise the rates constantly, right? That's right. So um, now that they know there's some competition coming, and we've made sure that word is out on the street, um, they're they're getting pressured by these customers, by the community anchor institutions and businesses, to really you know show up with their best pricing strategy. Um, and so I think that's exciting. And then even in the cable world, they're fully aware that. Um, that this could affect um, their market, and they're trying desperately to protect it. Um, so we've seen some specials on the street, you know, uh, 
not $34.99, but $24.99 for one year and so on and so forth. All of that seems to be happening. So those things are happening. But for the anchors, um, most of the community anchor institutions are we're connecting into their facility. They will be they will have fiber in their telecom room, and they will have access to multiple service providers in a competitive environment on our network. But even if they choose not to do that, they immediately have the ability to have um, their current carrier is going to have to compete with those carriers, those providers who will ride on our network. And so they're already seeing that they're getting to, you know, those current providers are uh, being very aggressive in their pricing. That's interesting. Uh, we've seen a number of networks where they do this open access or wholesale only approach for residents that, that you're doing, uh, but often they'll be the ones that provide access to the schools and the community anchor institutions. So, so you're in fact not even providing service to them. You're really acting as purely a ne as a network infrastructure. That's exactly it. And I think you know I I think it works for us. But um, as soon as we become a service provider, then it, I think you start to lose those uh, service providers who might actually want to be on the network as well. So we're setting up a competitive environment, and I think there are and there are service providers who will take advantage of that. Some who who uh, want to hold on to the customer they have today, um, and you know a community anchor institution or a school district. Um, and some new ones who are coming into this market and saying we can play without putting in um, a lot of capital. How does the arrangement with the uh, ISPs work in terms of uh, sharing revenue and making sure all the costs are paid and that sort of thing? We have um, we actually have brought in an operator. Um, we are in the midst of those agreements. Um, and but that operator operates networks of this type um, as open access networks um, in our neighboring state of Massachusetts and in Canada, uh, Singapore, across Europe. So it's an experienced operator. Service providers like that. They like the fact that it's an experienced operator who will be operating this network, managing it, provisioning it, um, service level agreements, um, accept acceptable use policies, 24-7 uh, help desk, all of those sorts of things, and they're not. Um, and so um, the service providers will sign an agreement with us, and that, that agreement basically says, you understand this is an open access network, that you are not the only service provider on this network. And then, of course, the liability language, liability insurance, and so on language, and the pricing structure wholesale pricing structure based on product. And then they will indeed then sign a service agreement, a connecting agreement with our operator for day-to-day -day communications and work and, and service levels. Um, and so those two agreements will um, are being, people are looking at them now and signing them as they go. But um, it's, it was important for us to have both. Um, we need to continue to have a relationship with those service providers. We have the ability on our network to allow for those service providers to extend our network. So for an example, if they wanted to build out to a commercial district or a commercial park, um, they could do that. And we have a model for a shared revenue um, process in that or just a, a lit service back to our co-location facility. Um, depends on whether they build out open access or not. But 
the um, the Urbana Champagne BTOP project, one of the other very few uh, last mile projects, uh, has a provision where others can expand the network or extend the network, but they are expected to um, preserve it as open access. Um, so you, it seems like you have a little more leeway for service providers. Well, we have both. Um, the operator that we are partnering with it has interest in expanding the network too. And when you expand the network through the use of uh, town or town funds or towns, um, the town's ability to uh, sort of gather their resources together, then that becomes an extension as open access. But there are some service providers who who, who want to provide specifically to an industry or a park or a multi-tenant building or something along those lines. And if they have indeed paid for that extension and for that construction off the network to that location, um, then those become their customers. Um, and so we have a real, you know, they can indeed, and they can then either, um, we'll provision that to the node. We'll bring the fiber to the node and then they'll provision it going forward. You mentioned that towns uh, um, can use, to some extent, their their ability to finance some of these expansions. Uh, I understand that there's some limitations in the New Hampshire law, and there's a bill that uh, may address some of those. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I can. Um, it's House Bill 286, um, and I actually was up there testifying on Tuesday, so... <laughs> Um, it's there's a, uh, a bonding bill um, before the house that is that that currently exists today, and it does allow for bonding for broadband. But there are provisions in that bill that indicate you can't bond for broadband if, in fact, your town or municipality has any service at all. So it allows you to bond for the unserved areas only, and and if you're not unserved, then you're not allowed to bond. Um, and so the language isn't particularly clear. It just it, the way it's written. Most towns read the language, and most attorneys that say, you know, you have a Comcast line down the center of town that precludes you from bonding for anything, even though you have a vastly rural area that's unserved. Um, so we're asking the the state to remove the barriers in that bill, to let the towns make those decisions locally. Very few towns um, probably will will want to do that, but why prevent them from making that decision? Um, and it's being lobbied heavily by the incumbent carriers um, not to remove that language. Um, as I worked on this project, you can't get to those rural areas unless you run through the center in town. <laughs> I mean, there's just no no pole access or or rights away to get there. Um, and so, in essence, they added that language to prevent towns from doing that, and um, and that uh, we're asking them to remove it. One of the things that keeps coming up in those hearings is by incumbents is that we're overbuilding. <laughs> and I think to myself, okay, if I'm running fiber, Fast Road is running fiber throughout this community, even on your poles in which you have copper, and the and the uh, cable company has coax. How is that an overbuild? Right. You can't put that interstate here. We already have a dirt road. Right. That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. And so, but but trying to get that message through to the representatives is, um, it's very difficult. Um, but the lot, you know, 
uh, New Hampshire fasters can't afford a lobbyist in Concord. This is just New Hampshire. I can't even right. imagine at the internet, at the, you know, <laughs> national level. But you know, you have a, you have um, Comcast, Time Warner, and Fairpoint who have lobbyists, full-time lobbyists at the table. And then you have the New Hampshire Telecom Association, who only the ILEX belong to, and the New, Ham- uh, the New England Cable Association, also mm-hmm. with lobbyists at the table. And they're there every day. Right. And so it's really hard to uh, make an impression on the representatives Right, we've actually we've seen this for a number of years, uh, and each time, um, for at least the past two, I want to say the the incumbent le- uh, lobbyists have unfortunately been able to defeat it. I'm I'm very hopeful that people will pay greater attention this year and put some pressure on elected officials to um, stop getting in the way, um, because as you say, these decisions need to be made by the communities. There's there's so many different factors that are just unique to each community that you can't have a one size fits all policy. And, and that's right. And the other is is that um, the, it's Fastroads has a, a, a great territory, and um, but the the state itself is building out with the, with those federal funds There's about 750 miles of broadband uh, fiber broadband across the state, redundant loops, all the way into the North Country, um, where there's very seldom any access at all. And why not have this tool in the toolbox? for those towns that might want to build off that vast infrastructure of middle mile um, to to get broadband, big broadband, to their towns. Um, why prevent it? And um, and so those are, you know, sort of my questions to the legislative uh, individuals, representatives, and is uh, there's just really no reason to, to uh, put a barrier in place. There are operators out there who will operate it for them. Um, they're and share revenue back, um, you know. So it's not like they have to learn to be a telco. Right. We actually we often say we need an all hands on deck ap- approach, right? We're not we're not saying that um, we're going to pick which is the correct uh, approach for any given town, but they uh, they sure need to have all the options open to them. That's exactly. Let me ask you what other if there's any other challenges that you're facing in terms of making sure that Western New Hampshire has the connections it needs. Well, I have to say that when I um, agreed to do this project, I didn't know how much politics was going to be involved, um, and so um, it, that was eye-opening. But more importantly than that was this whole poll attachment issue in New Hampshire, and it uh, it's it stymies me because uh, it is in fact um, 20% of our our costs on this project went to poll attachment work. Um, to the utilities for licensing, for moving, you know, third-party moves and uh, utility moves and new poles um, replacement and so on, and and so that's the cost structure and that's pretty high, but more importantly, it's the time. So the way that PUC has uh, set up this process in New Hampshire allows each entity, whether it be the electrical entity or the telco um, or the third-party attachers a phenomenal amount of time to do their work. So you submit an application, it could be as long as, you know, six weeks to, to 12 weeks, and then the next group has to, then it's another six to 12 weeks to do the make ready, and then the next group has to come in. It could take you as long as nine months to a year to get on a poll. And in some cases, as we're finding in the Enfield region, those applications were submitted in the fall, 
of 2011, and they're not done in Enfield, so we're well over a year uh, for the utility to do their make-ready work. So just imagine if you're trying to recruit a, a national business to your town, and you have a, the perfect location for this business, but you need to run broadband out to that location in order for them to have the service that they need. And you tell that company it will take nine months to a year to get you a, a fiber broadband connection. That's a problem. Yeah, where do you think they're going to go? Yeah, they're going to go somewhere else is for sure. That's right. And so that process of pole attachments needs to change. Um, because it, it is an, it's just another very big barrier to building out uh, networks, to connecting businesses, to connecting new businesses in industrial areas. Um, it is just a, a, a very onerous process. Now, I, I often find that people assume that the problem with being in the right-of-way, which includes pole attachment to some extent, is a problem of local governments being somehow lazy or incompetent. But uh, what you're saying is that it's the pole owners, which tends to be maybe Fairpoint, maybe an electric utility. Um, you know, it's a variety of people. Is that my understanding that correctly? That is correct. And, and so um, generally speaking, the poles are co-owned uh, by the uh, utility, the electric utility, and the tele the incumbent telco. And so in both of those cases, they need to uh, look at the polls and decide if make-ready work is, is being prepared. The process is bad, but, but more importantly, it's, it sort of has to start from the beginning. Where do you put the first wire on the pole? You're at what level to leave space for additional carriers? Right, and no one wants to be the lowest wire on the pole. Right. And, and yet the lowest wire, wire in the pole, for whatever reason, seems to have to be the incumbent telco. So they don't put it at the minimum level. They put it, you know, much higher up on the pole. And then the next person comes along, the next company, and they need to drop theirs by a foot and add the next one. And now you have to move both of them. <laughs> um, it's just a, a process that's, that doesn't work well. But in New Hampshire, the other, there's, there's this other contentious issue about whether municipalities have rights to be on the pole. And originally, when they put poles in the right-of-way, that was the case, that municipalities could have access, and there's even a defined section on the pole in which municipalities could use the poles. But over time, that's been narrowed. The scope of what they can put on the pole has been narrowed to to the extent where I believe it's only public safety um, you know, connectivity that can be put in that location in the municipal space on the pole. But that discussion keeps going you know, back and forth between the PUC and the municipalities is, is do they or do they not have a space on the pole that belongs to the municipality? And so that's another area that, that I'm sure that most people think it's defined already, but probably needs uh, to make sure that it gets challenged and, you know, sort of put a bad rest. Is there anything else that we should know about uh, this uh, project in New Hampshire? That this is just the beginning, that we need to move these types of projects forward across the state so that we can reach these rural areas, because um, it, only with this kind of broadband in the rural areas will they survive from an economic perspective. So um, I think that's, you know, it's important that we continue this work. And I appreciate all the work that you do as well. 
because I think you, uh, your um, institute has a way of opening minds and doors, and it, it's an important uh, place to start the conversation. Well, well, thank you. I think there's going to be many communities who will be very interested in learning more about Fast Roads. We'll have a, a link to your website, and um, we hope that uh, you have all the success in the world as uh, the project moves forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Carol Monroe, thank you for visiting with us and sharing the status on New Hampshire Fast Roads. The project website, NewHampshireFastRoads.net, contains more information on the project as it develops. If you follow the New Hampshire tag at MuniNetworks.org, you can read our coverage. We encourage your questions or comments. Email us at podcast at MuniNetworks.org. Follow us on Twitter to learn more about the most recent developments relating to community networks, broadband policy, and telecommunications. Our handle on Twitter is at CommunityNets. This show was released on March 5, 2013. Thanks to D. Charles Spear and the Helix for their song, Freddy's Lapels, licensed using Creative Commons. 